You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Okay, off we go. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's event hosted by the U.S. Institute of Peace, entitled From Dissent to Democracy, The Promise and Perils of Civil Resistance Transitions. And this also happens to be the title of my colleague Jonathan Pinckney's new book, uh, published by Oxford University Press, that we'll be discussing today. And we're really thrilled and grateful to have all of you joining us from around the world and really are looking forward to a great and lively discussion. And just one note that you can follow this event uh, live on Twitter with the hashtag PeoplePowerForPeace. That's PeoplePower number four peace. Uh, and my name is Maria Stefan. I direct USIP's program on nonviolent action. And really, it's always a great day when a colleague publishes a book, particularly one that's really good and interesting, um, a wee story. I had the pleasure of first meeting Jonathan about six years ago when I was a practitioner at residence at the University of Denver, and he was writing his PhD. Um, Erica introduced us, and I remember first being super excited to meet someone so passionate about data coding and clearly really good at it. And then over lunch, he was asking me such great questions about the relationship between civil resistance and democratization. And I remember not having very good answers to most of those questions. So fast forward a few years, we're now colleagues and there is a book, uh, which I know has been a labor of love for Jonathan and probably for his family and for his friends as well. So congratulations, Jonathan. And really the launch of this book and the discussion today could not be more timely. Uh, Nonviolent grassroots movements have historically been major drivers of social, political, and economic change as ordinary people have used protests, strikes, boycotts, sit-ins, and hundreds of other methods of nonviolent action to resist oppression, advance justice, and hold governments accountable. And here in the US, in the wake of the broadest protests in US history with Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives, we are mourning the loss of Representative John Lewis, who was a great champion of USIP and who dedicated his life to the struggle for justice, democracy, and peace, and was a fierce believer in the power of nonviolence and nonviolent action. In the US and around the world, there has been a spike in people power over the past few years, at the same time that we've been seeing a decline in the levels of democracy and a rise of authoritarianism. We know that while nonviolent movements themselves have democratizing effects, such as getting people involved in political action and balancing power in society, movements do not always lead to a smooth, stable transition to democracy following the de departure of an authoritarian regime. Today, Jonathan will be explaining to us why some transitions driven by movements end in democracy, while others do not. And then we will have a broader discussion on civil resistance and democracy with our esteemed group of panelists. 
and followed up by a question and answer session with you all, um, we'll, we'll be taking questions from you. And just a note on that, uh, you all can type your questions using the chat feature, which is directly under the video player on the event page that you're on now. So we are really uh, uh, fortunate and grateful to have a truly remarkable group of panelists, uh, civil resistance and social movements, uh, experts, scholars, and practitioners uh, who will help animate this morning's conversation. And I'll introduce them now. So Erica Chenoweth is the Berthold Bites Professor in Human Rights and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School. She has conducted extensive research focusing on political violence and its alternatives. She and I wrote a book together a few years ago and have certainly stayed in touch since that time. Um, Erica has a forthcoming book called Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. Zachariah Mampili is the Marx Endowed Chair of International Affairs at the Marx School of Public and International Affairs at the City University of New York. He is an expert on the politics of both violent and nonviolent resistance. He is the author of Rebel Rulers, Insurgent Governance and Civilian Life During War, and the co-author of Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change. Hardy Merriman is president and CEO of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, which focuses on how movements can build their effectiveness and win rights, freedom, and justice. He's worked in the field of civil resistance for over 15 years. And I would note that his organization, ICNC, has probably done more than any other organization I know of to advance the field of civil resistance. And for that, I think we're all very grateful. Huda Shafiq is a women's, women's rights activist from Sudan with a decade of experience in women, peace, and security. Her work focuses on gender equality and social justice. Huda has held several posts in national and international organizations, including with the United Nations in Sudan and in the region. And she's currently Sudan's program director with Karama, which is a network of civil society groups and activists across Africa and the Arab world. And finally, Jonathan Pinckney is program officer and research lead for USIP's program on nonviolent action. He is an expert on nonviolent action, focusing on the intersection between nonviolent movements, democratization, and peace processes. And he's certainly a delightful colleague. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Jonathan. Thank you so much, Maria, for that uh, incredibly kind introduction. Uh, it is my uh, extreme pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm so grateful to all the people who are, who are joining us here um, and uh, very much looking forward to being able to discuss uh, this work that have been engaged in uh, for the last uh, several years. Uh, if you'll give me just one moment, I will pull up a presentation. All right, thanks so much. Um, as I was saying before, uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is a topic that I have been, I have been thinking about and working on for, for quite some time. Uh, versions of this work, I've had discussions with almost, uh, almost everyone on this panel uh, about, uh, and it's very exciting uh, to finally be able to, to share this final product uh, with everyone. Um, and so to begin uh, this, uh, this discussion, I wanted to go back to the moment where, in many cases, the, the inspiration uh, for this book began. And that's right here uh, in Tahrir Square, Cairo, February 11th of 2011. 
Uh, and of course, as many of you uh, will remember, uh, this is the moment at which Hosni Mubarak, uh, the president of Egypt, uh, stepped down from power uh, after a, a three-week massive uprising uh, that was in, in many ways the peak of the 2011 uh, Arab uprisings in the Middle East. And now, of course, this was this moment of incredible hope uh, where uh, people around the world and in the region were optimistic that major political change could happen in a region that had resisted it for quite some time uh, through nonviolent action. Um, and this was supported, of course, uh, because uh, longstanding existing research uh, had found that nonviolent resistance had this positive relationship with democratization. Uh, that when political change happened through nonviolent means, it was much more likely to democratize. Uh, but of course, what happened over the following years uh, was that this moment of hope very quickly turned into uh, a mom moments of frustration as the transition failed to, to reach its goals, uh, and then ultimately authoritarian backsliding and a return to a regime that was in some ways even more repressive than the regime that had, that had come before it. So why did this happen? In particular, this is a crucial question to answer because we know that the uh, uprisings of 2011 weren't the beginning of this kind of political change. Uh, indeed, uh, since World War II, uh, there have been 78 political transitions that were initiated uh, primarily through nonviolent resistance. And as you can see from the map here, these span every country of the world, every decade since then. Uh, and as, as I argue in the book, the pervasiveness of this phenomenon uh, means that if we really want to understand the rise and decline of democracy uh, in the post-war era, we really need to understand the impacts of nonviolent resistance uh, on democratic progress. So this was the core question that I wanted to get at in this book. Uh, why do successful nonviolent resistance campaigns sometimes lead to democracy uh, and why do they sometimes not? And in particular, I was very curious uh, to know if there, are, if there are ways, if there's anything that can be done about that. Uh, are there factors that impact democratization in transitions brought about through nonviolent resistance uh, that can be changed uh, by, during the political dynamics of the transition itself? Uh, or is democracy in these cases just something that's the result of longstanding economic uh, or social trends uh, that change only in time scales of decades or centuries. So how did I go about answering that, those questions? Well, first, I really wanted to dig in in a very rigorous way to this question of whether that democratizing effect of nonviolent resistance actually obtained. Uh, so to do that, I did a series of statistical analyses of over 300 transitions of every type comparing other kinds of transitions with transitions initiated through nonviolent resistance. Then, uh, to answer this question of when nonviolent resistance uh, leads to democracy and when it doesn't, I did some further statistical analysis comparing those 78 civil resistance transitions uh, that I was talking about before. And then finally, uh, did three most different case studies, talking with activists, political leaders, journalists, and others who were particularly familiar with three political transitions that have been initiated primarily through nonviolent resistance. Uh, transition in Brazil in 1984, Zambia in 1991, and Nepal in 2006. So what did I find? Uh, well, in answer to the first question, 
I would say that the, uh, the findings from uh, the work of Erica, Maria, and, and others uh, on the democratizing advantages of civil resistance uh, was, is indeed very real and very striking. Uh, as you can see here, a large majority of transitions uh, that have nonviolent resistance as a key factor in their initiation uh, end in at least a minimal level of democracy. Nearly three times more than tr transitions uh, that are initiated through any other means. Uh, this is one of the most uh, one of the most robust findings uh, in the democratization literature out there. So, what explains uh, this twenty percent or so that failed to do so? The, the key question that that I started the book with. Well, I argue that the key reason has to do with the uncertainty of the transition itself. While nonviolent resistance might incline a transition towards democracy, there is a great amount of uncertainty during the transitional period before a new regime becomes consolidated. In particular, I argue that, there are, that in the context of a transition initiated through nonviolent resistance, there are two key challenges that systematically affect a country's chances of democratization. The first is the challenge of maintaining mobilization, uh, continuing high levels of civic engagement and continued activism through the transitional period to hold new elites accountable and prevent backsliding by spoilers. And as an example, uh, we can think about the transition in 2014-2015 in Burkina Faso, initiated through massive nonviolent resistance, but the protesters didn't simply go home once the transition started. Instead, they stayed mobilized, and thus when uh, uh, factions in the military attempted to derail the transition through a coup, there was a massive popular upswell that, that foiled the coup and kept that country's transition on track. The second challenge uh, is to avoid maximalism. And this uh, challenge is in many ways the mirror image of the first. A political action focused towards all or nothing maximalist extreme goals, rather than building up the new institutions that are necessary for democracy, can derail transitions and lead to no, no future consolidation. Instead, there's a crucial need for dialogue, moderation, and directing civic engagement uh, into building new institutional channels. Uh, and one excellent example of this uh, from recent history uh, is the Nobel Peace Prize winning Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet. Uh, that you know, when the Tunisian transition was moving in a very maximalist direction, brought the various political forces to the table, focused political action towards the construction of a new constitution, and helped uh, consolidate that country's transition. So that's my argument and some cases to, su to potentially support it. But what kind of evidence is there to actually, actually show that this is the case? Well, statistically speaking, there is a very clear correlation between high mobilization, low maximalism, and post-transition democracy. Uh, as you can see in the figure here, uh, each one of these dots is an individual transition. The yellow uh, transitions, the ones that end in democracy, cluster uh, at very high levels of mobilization and very low levels of maximalism, uh, while the non-democracies tend to cluster in the, the lower right-hand side uh, with very high levels of maximalism and low levels of mobilization. So there's a, certainly a strong statistical relationship there. But what if this is just you know, random statistical noise uh, attributable to something else? Well, in the three case studies uh, where I had in-depth interviews uh, with people who were involved in these transitions, I find very strong support uh, for the role of mobilization and maximalism 
uh, in democratization in these kinds of transitions. Uh, and just very briefly, uh, in Nepal in 2006, it was a transition characterized by high levels of mobilization and high levels of maximalism that resulted in a what I call a fractious semi-democracy, uh, one where there's a lot of political action, uh, but it tends to be, but it tends to uh, not lead to much institutional support and only low levels of democracy. The Zambian transition in 1991 was one characterized by low levels of mobilization uh, and low levels of maximalism and resulted in what I call an elite semi-democracy, uh, one that was dominated by elites, many of whom were part of the old regime uh, that was in power before the transition started. Uh, and finally, the transition in Brazil in the 1980s was one characterized by this combination that I argue uh, is most conducive to democracy. High levels of mobilization and low levels of maximalism resulting in a, for the most part, highly successful democratic transition. Uh, of course, uh, recent events in Brazil uh, have, have maybe put uh, Brazil's democracy in, in some level of threat. Uh, so I'll just emphasize this is about the transition in the 80s. And at that point, uh, Brazil was one of the most uh, robust democracies uh, in Latin America. So uh, to, to conclude, uh, I do find indeed uh, supporting the, the work of others that civil resistance is the most direct road from authoritarianism to democracy. And that uh, addressing these two challenges maintaining mobilization and avoiding maximalism are key to staying on that road. And finally, I'll say, as I think uh, any, uh, any academic must when, uh, when talking about their findings, that there is mu certainly much more to be learned here. Um, my argument isn't that these are the only two things that matter in leading from nonviolent resistance to democracy. Indeed, there's, there's much more out there uh, and much more work to be done in understanding this crucial question of how we get uh, from successful nonviolent resistance to the successful consolidation of democracy. Uh, thank you so much once again for being here, and I'm very excited to uh, begin the discussion with this excellent group of panelists. Great, well, thanks so much, Jonathan, for that short, sweet, and super meaty presentation. Um, I'm now going to turn to our panelists um, to get their reactions, uh, starting with Erica. So Erica, you've recently shown data that um, although nonviolent resistance is becoming increasingly common um, and movement, their movements seem to be on the rise globally, they're also becoming less successful in achieving their goals. So why is this and what are the implications for the impact of nonviolent resistance on democracy, which is, of course, a central concern of Jonathan's book? Yeah, thanks, Maria. And thanks so much, Jonathan, uh, for that great presentation, for writing the book, for illuminating the topic so beautifully. Um, I'm convinced by your argument and, um, and I'm uh, really grateful that uh, this piece of great scholarship is now out in the world uh, for others to, um, to learn from as well. So um, I wanna re reply quickly to uh, Maria's question, but um, maybe later we can respond a little bit to some of the things that Jonathan brings up too. Um, I think that you know, the, the main reason why the incidence of nonviolent resistance is increasing um, is uh, that it has been uh, so visibly effective over the past 60 years on an increasing basis and that that knowledge is now more widely available to more people. 
Um, the reason why uh, I think it's been declining in its effectiveness is more related to the way that movements have started to um, manifest in more recent years, particularly around um, focus on street demonstrations rather than on building alternative institutions and other forms of non-cooperation that are maybe more uh, time-consuming and difficult to build. Um, and uh, I think this is related a little bit to um, modes of digital organizing, which tend to privilege um, short-term uh, rapid response, rapid mobilization, um, and the ability to draw large numbers in a short amount of time, um, but without the ability to sort of uh, build long-term organizational capacity for transformation and for negotiating the very difficult challenges that Jonathan has laid out with regard to um, essentially uh, trying to um, create and invest in the new institutions. Um, while the mobilization is happening or even before mobilization starts. Uh, so I, I think that it's very much related to some of the issues that Jonathan brings up, not just with the post uh, uh, civil resistance campaign tra uh, transition, but also how the campaigns are turning out um, in, the, in the sort of midst of mass mobilization. Great, thanks very much, uh, Erica. Uh, turning to Zachariah, uh, you have written about several waves of popular protests in Africa that have often failed to enact a formal democratic change, but have clearly played an important role in, in raising collective consciousness in those countries. So what would be your evaluation of some of the recent protest waves across the continent, such as in Sudan, Algeria, Zimbabwe, and the like, and are we likely to see formal institutional changes in these places? Thank you for the question and thank you for having me on this panel today. Uh, like Erica, I think I really enjoyed Jonathan's books. It's a, it's a really nuanced um, and detailed account of, I think, some of the more um, complicated aspects of the connection between nonviolent protest movements and the kind of outcomes that we would like to see around democratization in particular. Um, and I think I, you know, I would sort of respond to the question by, by sort of tying it to some of the stuff that Jonathan is trying to do in his book, and maybe pointing to one of the, the sort of, I wouldn't say weaknesses, but maybe an area that you could uh, take the research further in the future, which is that, you know, a lot of these questions, as your map showed, um, are, have been debated very vigorously in the African context since the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, as your map sort of details, I would just guess that the plurality of such transitions that you're pointing to uh, have occurred in the African context, as you sort of talk about, and as I think many people already know, uh, there was a major upsurge of protest activity in Africa in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, uh, one of which you talk about in the book, the, the Zambian case, which was part of that second wave. Uh, and these were really extraordinary moments in which, you know, uh, uh, at the start of this protest wave, only about three African countries were even remotely democratic in some form. And by the end of it, less than a decade later, you had more than 20 African countries that had democratized to some degree. Uh, and so that raises a question that I think Maria is getting at, which is, uh, if Africa has already gone through this period of democratization in the 80s and 90s, and why would people be taking to the streets in such big numbers over the past, say, five to 10 years? Again, uh, you know, why protest uh, if you already have achieved democracy? Uh, and actually, this is a question that a lot of African intellectuals were really debating strongly in the 1990s, because many of them felt uh, that the nature of democracy that had come into being following these civil resistance campaigns uh, was not democracy in any sort of recognizable sense as the rule of the people. 
uh, that it had been reduced to uh, a very institutional form of, of electoral competition. Uh, and that in particular, opposition parties, uh, which had really benefited from these civil resistance campaigns, were not bringing about the kinds of transformative economic and political changes uh, that had motivated people to go out into the streets in the first place. And so if you look at this literature, and here I'm thinking about people like Claude Ake, uh, Ernest Wambadia Wamba, which just recently passed, uh, Ifi Amadume, one of my favorites, Tandika Mkandawire, uh, in the diaspora, Pearl Robinson, who was my undergraduate mentor. Uh, we're all really in the 90s creating this vibrant literature, uh, debating precisely the question that I think Jonathan is putting forward today, which is why do these massive uh, uprisings that draw in huge numbers of people fail to bring about the types of institutional transformations uh, that people are hoping for and expecting by putting themselves at risk by, by, by participating in these uprisings. Uh, and I think that in order to understand what has been happening in the African context, and I think perhaps globally over the past, past five to 10 years, gets at both a kind of conceptual and a methodological challenge of conducting these kind of studies over what is the meaning of democracy itself. And the book actually has a really nuanced discussion of this. Um, as we know, most scholars rely very heavily on these uh, types of data sets, the VDEM data set, which I think you use here, but there's many others, Freedom House and others. Uh, that tend to emphasize uh, these very institutional dimensions of democratic transition. Uh, really, the right to vote becomes the central indicator of whether a country has achieved something like democracy. Uh, and this goes against what you refer to as uh, Robert Dahl's insights about substantive democracy. Right? What, what does democracy actually mean? Is democracy simply the right to vote? Uh, or must we also think about democracy uh, in relation to, say, uh, other types of rights, like a right to uh, assembly, a right to free speech, and potentially even more thornier rights, like uh, economic rights, like a right to housing, uh, or a right to employment. Uh, these are all aspects of the debate around democratization that unfolded in the 1990s in the African context that I think all of us globally uh, need to start thinking about more seriously in this moment. Right, because if we understand what has been happening, uh, yes, there have been cases like Sudan where you, know, you have African protesters really challenging uh, entrenched autocracies, but these protests have also been unfolding in countries like Malawi uh, and Senegal, which actually had institutional democracy, suggesting that what these protests are about is not simply the presence of formal democracy, um, but also about the very meaning of democracy itself. And I think that's where we all collectively uh, need to start thinking about how we can take on this, this question in this moment. All right, thanks so much, uh, Zachariah, and um, really helpful points on the importance of the substance of democracy. And uh, Sudan, as we were discussing before the before the event, is just such a fascinating case study where you have a recent uh, mass popular participatory nonviolent movement that um, has led to the ouster of longtime dictator Omar Bashir and is in this very delicate um, uh, process of democratic transition right now. So I wanted to turn to Huda. Um, you know, Sudan has just such a rich history of citizen mobilization. So I wanted to just first ask you what you think were the main, um, the main factors that enabled the movement to trigger a political transition last year, um, knowing that there had been a wave of protests and other kind of uprisings in Sudan previously. So what was it about last year that, that drove the transition? And what would you say has been the role of movement leaders and participants in that transition? 
Um, and, you know, maybe tying together some of the points uh, Erica and uh, Zachariah made, what would you say are some of the challenges are right now uh, for Sudan's uh, transition and um, the, the challenges that the movement leaders are facing in this moment? So a lot of, a lot of questions for you, Huda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think we can divide the, the reasons or the triggers that led to the change that happened throughout the last year into like a, a lot of experiences like over years that uh, of, of organized uh, resistance that have been happening by like university students groups, women's groups, civil society, political parties, armed groups. So we have long history of organized resistance, but I think there are also set of immediate reasons that actually triggered that kind of mobilization that lasted for almost uh, seven months, which was the clear division that has been happening even within the ruling party and the issues of corruption that was coming on the surface and the fact that they were practicing everything that they were denying the people to do so. In addition to the collapse in all like aspects like economic collapse, social and security situation as well that was going like deteriorating in a, in a horrible way. So like for example with the economic uh, situation, I mean you, you, we saw the lines for everything. We had to line up for everything, for like breaks in front of bakeries, for gas, for cash money, for everything. So so the situation, the, the collapse of the of the government was just so obvious and visible to deny. Um, and I think there are also some other lessons learned that we learned from the region definitely because when 2011 like um, revolution started in the region we had to uh, 2013 and at the time we, we like to call it Habub which is this um, unique sandstorm that Sudan is, is known about and it came and it was very strong but it was also faced with a lot of um, brutality and violence but we also learned a lot from, from that experience. We learned that there is a need to not centralize the movement. And that was huge within the December revolution. It, it didn't start from Khartoum, it started from outside and it continued. There were also a very important aspect of uh, political organ, uh, coordination. And we didn't have that as successful uh, in 2013 as we had it in uh, during starting from December. So having actually the, the, the pro-change forces from civil society and political parties and armed groups to be committed to non-violence movement, that was huge achievement. So having all of them agreeing to a minimum agenda, at least towards change, uh, despite their ideological uh, differences, that was also huge and having forming this uh, alliance of forces of freedom and change and having uh, Sudanese Professional Association, SPA, as the new ambiguous leaders behind it, had also created a lot of trust between leadership and people. Uh, because of, there's also a history of, of uh, lack of trust between people and political parties for various reasons, but that created a trust, created leadership, but also because it was a joint planning for whatever non-violence uh, events that was happening, uh, that also created um, local leadership and it, it allowed the space for creativity initiative and and it also um allowed the space for um, new organization and structures within the neighborhood to come across the country and this might sound um not a big deal but it was a big deal having something that's not centralized and and it's still and and really boosted the movement and the mobilization to continue for like uh, seven almost seven months uh, that was huge and um but still um, just not to to run over my time, uh, maybe I would jump to to 
to the challenges. I think um, there are many challenges that we're facing now, starting from the civil military type of government that we're having now that not everyone is agreeing upon, of course. That is a very um, sensitive, let's say, um, agreement that the, the political leaders uh, agreed to with the Transition Military Council, which is, I mean, very hard to balance. There's, of course, the economic situation that's still like having baby steps to, to improve the security situation as well. And the fact that members of the previous regime are still um, in many um, like uh, sensitive um, uh, positions, let's say, and they're doing, they're really organized and they're mobilizing themselves and their members uh, trying to, to, to just um, like having this transition to fail. So it's, it's, um, it's it's really critical situation that we're having right now, but the continuous of the mobilization, just referring to, to Jonathan's point, is really one of the key um, points we're having now. And I would just conclude by referring to the 30th of June. I think the 30th of, of, uh, of June was really one of the, uh, the huge steps we had over the revolution because after the massacre that happened in the city and the lack of, and the cut of the com complete cut of internet, having millions of people marching in the streets with all that, um, we expected a lot of violence and brutality to happen as well, but it succeeded. And I think that showed the power of the people and it still became um, a very inspiring day and, and, uh, and preparations we had for us to keep continuing in mobilizing. Great, well, thanks Huda for that really fantastic summary of the revolution itself and some of the challenges now in the, during the transition period. Um, so, you know, one of the really key lessons from Jonathan's book is the importance of maintaining mobilization during the transition period. So I wanted to turn to, to Hardy. Hardy, from your work with movements all around the world, what would you say are some of the strategies that have helped movements maintain uh, momentum and mobilization during critical transition periods? Thanks, Maria. And um, I want to echo people's congratulations to Jonathan as well on his fantastic new book. Um, on the question of sustaining mobilization, I think, you know, we can look at long-term sort of more strategic factors and short-term tactical factors that would contribute to this. And one longer-term factor that I think really matters is when movements set expectations with their supporters and participants that they're probably going to be in a multi-year struggle. And so, you know, I think of the really helpful finding in the from the NAVCO data set that the average maximalist nonviolent campaign takes three years to conclude. And which means, of course, some take longer. Now that's three years is remarkable. <clears throat> if you want to achieve major social, political, or economic change and you can do it in three years, that's fantastic. But if you're an activist in the middle of it, it can seem agonizingly long particularly if your expectation is that you're supposed to, that you want to win within three months or six months. And so setting the expectation that you will be in a multi-year struggle most likely, and yes, this doesn't even include what happens after the topic of Jonathan's book. There's sort of a second phase, right? You've got to defeat what you're against and achieve what you're for. So, so you develop a long-term commitment in people. You, you set the expectation that this is not a sprint, but also a marathon. There will be moments of sprinting but there will be moments where we regroup. And when I work with activists around strategizing, one thing that unlocks the strategic imagination is when we get out of a three to six month time frame and start thinking about two or three years. If you think you have to win it all in three to six months, and to be sure there could be circumstances where structurally that needs to happen, 
But if you have the, the liberty of thinking about longer time frames, your imagination and creativity and strategy can start to flow because you can think in terms of phases and waves that are going to allow you again to regroup at critical times. I think um, another key factor would be making sure that a movement has a theory of how it's going to win as a concept of how it's going to win. And this, this might seem abstract, but I think it's actually really important. So, so waging a nonviolent struggle is, can feel chaotic can feel overwhelming. There's so many different things to react to. And if you have a theory of, well, this is going to take some time, but here are a few key things that we can identify and track that will show us if we're achieving our goal. Are we more unified now than we were a year ago? Do we have greater nonviolent discipline? How is our recruitment and training capacity? Um, how's our participation look? It focuses you on those things, many of which you have some control over, and it frees you up to not necessarily have to react as much to your adversary, who could be pulling you in all kinds of directions and wearing you out. It also may get you out of going into cycles of protest, feeling like we have to keep protesting, we have to keep getting media attention, and if protest numbers or media attention drop off, which is inevitable, it always sort of wanes at some point, that's not an indicator necessarily that we're losing or that we need to kind of keep trying to keep that going. Participants may want to take another form, for example, in a boycott at that point. So I think having this theory and these key indicators of what you identify as your movement winning over time is really key. Um, one last thing I'd say, um, just in terms of long term, is movements are communities. They have to serve people's needs if they're going to last. And some of these needs could be economic, and you could have parallel institutions that serve people's, you know, build economic self-reliance. But also social and psychological needs are really important. When I think about the U.S. Civil Rights Movement or the United Farm Workers in the 1960s, they incorporated culture, they incorporated relationship building, they incorporated joy and creativity into their actions, into their meetings, into their events. And so you went, and whether you could be a frontline protester or not, there was something that could sustain you in that community and those relationships, and you could leave also with hope. It wasn't just politics, it was more than that. Um, you know, in the short term, tactical innovation is key. You have people who will um, wanna give everything to the cause and have the time and risk willingness to do it. And they could be leaders and, you know, do civil disobedience, but then coming up with different tiers of tactics for different levels of participation and risk tolerance is really critical. The person who has very little to give uh, in terms of time may be able to participate in a consumer boycott or donate a room in their house for meetings. So lots of different ways for movements to do it um, and, and thank you. Great, thanks Hardy, that was very well said. And you know, maybe Hoda, just given that you know, Sudan's transition is in, in progress right now on this question of uh, maintaining mobilization, do you have any thoughts on how movements are thinking about this now in Sudan, how to maintain kind of mobilization momentum during this period? Um, maybe two examples of what's already happening right now in Sudan is the continuous activism and mobilization of the people through the resistance committees that were already established during the revolution, but they're still ongoing, their work is still ongoing. So it's, um, it's like neighborhood based and then across Sudan. Uh, and they communicate with each other and they're really powerful structures now that they are very instrumental in like consultations, in like dialogue, in, in planning in general. 
So it's um, it's I, I see I see this mobilization as really one of the main support to the PM, for example, and the cabinet. They're not elected. The, the PM is not elected, but the political parties and the, the movements by the people, which are mostly led by resistance committees, have really been instrumental in just providing this uh, power of people, which which uh, which has always I mean that they all what they always say is that protests are around the street. So if things didn't go as we all planned and owned and, and, and we did for, for like freedom, justice and, uh, and peace, we're, we're always going to come back and having them, having them like active, that has been uh, really powerful. Uh, but also uh, that now there are new formed groups on neighborhood and communities based as well, which is called service uh, groups, which is support the communities in the neighborhood with basic needs as, as was just mentioned, like especially during the lockdown. So having like access to like gas and, and food and water and just raising awareness, for example, about the COVID and all of that. So they're actually filling a gap until all these structures, especially on the local level, are well uh, established and maintained because it has been mostly, especially during the previous regime, controlled and um, and dominated by uh, by people uh, members of previous regime. So this has been really kind of um, connecting communities with with leadership and with decision makers. So there is no gap as it used to be. But we also um, but also the movements and the political parties, civil society, and all of that are also working towards other important tactics that we need to assure like. Um, continuous of consultations with people, for example, when it comes to constitution making or for the ongoing peace process. Uh, so because you, you need the ownership that people had for the revolution for other for ongoing processes that's happening right now. And, and uh, but also what is very important is how to make sure that we're reforming the institutions in a way that it's um, reflecting and responding to the people's needs, like the judiciary system and um, and yeah, uh, lawmaking and, and um, like budgets, uh, finalization. And the fact that in this transition, we're going to have a legislative council that's not also elected, but still it's going to be the voices of the people. This is also one of the main lessons learned that we learned from uh, previous transitions. Hey, thanks so much, Huda. Uh, Jonathan, you highlighted two main challenges in the book um, during transitions that can facilitate democracy. Uh, but of course, transitions are often nonlinear, they're complex processes, and with many different important factors. So are there other things that your research has shown uh, that help to facilitate democracy and transitions that are driven by nonviolent resistance? Thanks, Maria. Uh, that's a that's a great question, and I think there is a, there's a lot more work to be done here to to get into a lot of these subtleties and complexities, um, as you know, as other members of this panel were were bringing up. I think just a, a couple of things I'll highlight, both because they're sort of findings that have come up in my own research, as well as I think connecting to to some of the points that were raised by by Hoda, by Zachariah, and and others. Um, so one thing, uh, one thing that I've found in other research relates to this question of maintaining mobilization through the creation of more long-standing, enduring uh, resistance structures, similar to the, the resistance committees uh, that Hubo was talking about. Um, so in some work uh, that I've done with uh, Charles Butcher and Jessica Braithwaite, uh, we found that uh, resistance movements that have the participation uh, of 
organizations that have a reason for existence beyond simply the resistance campaign. So things like labor unions or religious organizations, other sort of you know day-to-day -day kind of groups, if they participate in resistance, uh, then that's more likely to lead to more democracy over the long term. And I think it's exactly because these are organizations that have you know that longer term mindset that Hardy was talking about, uh, or those long-standing mobilization structures uh, that that Hodo was talking about. So I think that's one you know that sort of preliminary work at this point, but I think it's one really interesting factor uh, to continue to be digging into you know who is it exactly who is participating in nonviolent resistance and how does that affect these longer term these longer term issues. And then I think the second thing I'll bring up uh, is just related to uh, the, the role of dialogue and negotiation processes uh, in political transition. This is something that we're working on uh, at USIP right now, looking, looking at you know, what, does, what does dialogue that can say move away from the kinds of maximalist mobilization that I talk about in the book, what do these kinds of processes actually look like? How do they come about? Um, how do people who have been you know, more accustomed to protesting on the streets uh, come to the negotiation table uh, and come to agreements that can establish new political institutions? Um, that's something that's still sort of preliminary at this point, but I think one thing we're seeing is that you know, the, the ability of having uh, strong relationships uh, that, can, that can facilitate these negotiation structures uh, is is something that's quite crucial uh, for for addressing that particular challenge. Um, much more to dig into, but I will I will leave uh, leave that question there. Great, thanks, Jonathan. We actually already have questions uh, pouring in from the audience. And just a reminder, you can use the chat function, uh, which is right underneath the video player on the event page. So we already have a couple questions that I might as well start to, to inject them right now into the conversation. One is very much related to what you were just talking about, how to go away from maximalism. So the question from the audience is, how does the maximalism mechanism work in practice? and why does it lead to failure? And how did you measure this variable? So that, that has your name written all over it, Jonathan. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think probably the, the most helpful way to, to answer it is to, is to go into a particular case. Um, so you know, the, the one where I sort of, the case where I talk the most about maximalism in the book uh, is the transition in Nepal uh, that began in 2006 and, and lasted for, for several years thereafter. Um, and what you know, high levels of maximalism looked like in that particular in that particular case was basically any time a a new political change was sort of proposed for sort of what the new political system might look like, there was a move to basically shut down the country by anyone who happened to be opposed to it, and so there was sort of a, a back and forth like back and forth movements uh, that shut down the country anytime there was sort of a, a minor political shift uh, one way or another with very little room for very little room for compromise. Um, and the, the result of this uh, was, I mean, there were many different, many different impacts of this. One of them is a sort of gradual loss of faith in the potential for democracy in terms of broad public opinion and, and within activists and political elites as well. Uh, because they see that sort of people see that no like a new no new political system is being established. The sort of 
demand the sort of needs that they wanted met through a new political system that you know go well beyond just institutional changes also going to the kinds of economic and social changes that Zachariah was talking about are not are also not being met um, and so that you know gradual loss of faith uh, can lead to a desire in many cases for authoritar like authoritarian uh, return and open up a space uh, for that to occur uh, so that's one particular one particular avenue um, and I would say two consequences new institutions are very hard to establish um, and there's you know open and spaces opened up uh, for authoritarian backsliding um, as far as uh, how I measured the variable um, I, I won't go into sort of the the, the statistical nitty-gritty um, it is basically it's a, a combination of looking at extreme at sort of more extreme tactics uh, like general strikes um, or, or sort of comprehensive electoral boycotts uh, with also these sort of fragment measures of the fragmentation of the political system uh, between different part between uh, between different uh, political forces. Um, and, and of course there's a lot more a lot more in the uh, in the book about that. Um, yeah I Great. think with that uh, was that the uh, the scope of the question? Yes, and there are just to, to be thinking about um, maybe for another round is the follow-up question was, well, what types of movements are actually able to move away from maximalism and what allows them to mm. do so? So you can mm. maybe think about that. But Erica, I know you had a particular um, question for Jonathan related to the, the book and its findings. So go for it. Yeah, it's actually perfect timing because it's on this exact question, which is, um, there's sort of a tension in the two processes that you're bringing up, right? If you want to have people maintain collective mobilization, but you want to move away from maximalism, it's much easier to maintain collective mobilization around what Mark Beisinger calls a negative coalition, right? Where it's like, we don't want X, Y, Z, or we want so-and-so to leave office. But, um, you know, it's, it's easier slogans. We want justice. We want, you know, we want democracy. Um, but um, during the transition itself, it's very hard to sort of translate that and maintain the same enthusiasm to slogans like we want ranked choice voting and we want proportional representation with two rounds of runoffs. You know, there, there sort of is a mismatch between the types of um, the types of institutionalization processes that have to happen and the level of enthusiasm often attached to that. It, it speaks a little bit to Zachariah's concern too about just like you know the, what draws people into mobilization is values <clears throat> and what has to happen during the transition looks like basically institutionalization elite politics and another chance for power to be taken away from people right even if it's taken away through representative democracy and uh, quote unquote so can you speak a little bit about um, in the cases where that mobilization was maintained the enthusiasm around mobilization was maintained, even though it started to become a little bit more technocratic um, and, and how leadership can sort of play a role in, in ensuring those things can maintain um, some connection to one another. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Erica. That's, that's an excellent question. And, and I, I agree completely. This, these negative coalitional dynamics are, are so key to so many of these uprisings and it can be, it's, it is a real challenge to, to shift away from them. I think, you know, again, I'll go back to one of the cases in the book, which is the, the transition in Brazil, uh, where I think this, you know, this shift was handled quite well uh, by many different segments of the movement. Um, so I recall in, you know, in one of the interviews uh, that, uh, that's, in, that's in that chapter, I was talking with a, a leader of the, of the, the women's movement there. 
uh, who talked about how you know, they had mo they mobilized for a long time, both like leading up to the transition and then and then afterwards. And one thing that really struck me in how how that particular how that person talked about their mobilization against the Brazil's military regime was saying we didn't like we didn't see the ouster of the regime as an end in itself. We saw it as a means to an end. Uh, that our long term our long term goal was always gender equity. That's what like that's what we were like that's what we were fighting for. And the military regime was quite, you know, was quite conservative on that, on that, those lines, and opposed to that goal. And so we mobilized because we mobilized against the military regime because they were an obstacle towards that longer-term change. Not just because, you know, not just because we didn't, you know, we didn't, we hated the military regime. We did hate the military regime, uh, but mobilized against them primarily because they were an obstacle to these longer-term goals. And and I think that was something, you know, that's something that characterized. You know, many of the uh, like many of the activists across you know many different contexts uh, that I that I've talked to about this that you know they see they see a, a longer term a longer term set of of positive visions for the future uh, that are that are motivating them and they will you know they'll join those they'll join those negative coalitions um, against uh, a regime that is an obstacle to achieving that but what's really driving them is this is this longer term vision and that can kind of and that can keep people both you know focused on mobilization during the transition as well as you know once the like once the obstacle is gone then there's you know they're still focused on those those longer term institutional changes that they've always been interested in uh, so i think again that's certainly not the not the whole picture but i do think that's one that is sort of one important factor uh, in in meeting that Great, thanks, Jonathan. It just strikes me that this huge challenge of shifting away from negative coalition dynamics is just so fundamental. And it's also at the heart of the new research project that you're leading at USIP on people power, peace processes, and, and democratization. So it's a really, uh, really good question. Um, the next question from the audience is, is for you, Huda. Um, you talked about creating space for creativity and leadership at the local level which seemed to be a key element of both the Hong Kong and Black Lives Matter protests as well. Can you talk a little bit more about creating that space? Um, sure. Um, I think it's, um, I would say it's very much related to the, to the, the emerging of local leaders and the fact that the design of this nonviolence act acts and and protests were not an up bottom approach yet it was like most of the time bottom up approach or just a joint planning so just to give examples is that at the beginning we had and, and i'm i'm sure you must know that we had our schedule of protests like published and announced at every uh start of a week so that on like Sunday, we're gonna have a central protest. On like Wednesday, uh, Thursday, we're gonna have a central protest. At the beginning, that was it. And then when the local leaders, leadership and the neighborhood committees started to, to emerge and, and uh, they started saying, but no, maybe on Tuesday we can have um, an, uh, a musical night in, in neighborhoods, maybe. And then the secretary, and we think that we're ready like the doctors' union, for example, we're ready to start a strike. Then that's it. Let's have a strike. So it it wasn't just um, like uh, instructions. People came with ideas like a strike, like using art, like um, just having night protests, which really exhausted the 
security people because we had like acts going on all the time. So like they protest, they protest, night protest, uh, strikes um, using the art. And uh, for example, we had a train full of people came all the way from one of the states in the north to Khartoum to the city. And that was huge. It, it, it moved. Uh, and I think it took like one day because it kept stopping by uh, different uh, states in the, at the, in, in the way, bringing people. So um, I think the diversity, one of the reasons behind it was that the diversity uh, in Sudan also and the eagerness and the ownership of the people made them use their instruments and the symbols of freedom that they have. And the fact that there were a lot of, uh, that there was like strong communication between these groups. And also the fact that they remained ambiguous the whole time until the step down of the of al-Bashir and the previous regime. So people would just be communicating. It doesn't matter who you are. It's just about security and it's about trust. And then you come with ideas and, and that's it. It's, it was by everyone. Um, so I would say communication and, and ownership and just providing um, local leaders with the tools and the support they need and, and that's it. Great, thanks very much, uh, Huda. I think the next question is best targeted, Zachariah and, and Hardy. And the question is, is there a role for Western democracies to support democratic transitions? Zachariah, you want to take a stab at that one? Yeah, I'll try. I think, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a very important question uh, politically. We know uh, the United States and the West in general has played a role in, in, in democracy promotion, both for good and bad, uh, for much of the past, I say, seven decades now. Uh, and so we really need to get it right if we're going to interfere in these countries' internal politics. Uh, we want to be sure that we're on the side of good. And I think good in this sense would be uh, promoting democracy in a, in, a, in a meaningful way, in a substantive way. Uh, and I think that the only way that that can happen, I think this is the, the great challenge, uh, is that too much of how we think about uh, our engagement with democratic movements abroad are uh, sort of secondary or tertiary priorities in, in, in contrast to, say, uh, economic or security policy. And so you know, most of the time, and I think, Maria, you probably could answer this question as well as anyone, uh, you know, the, the, the desire for uh, supporting democratic movements is, is legitimate and, and I think at the individual level very meaningful, uh, but often gets trumped um, by other considerations. And we are too often, and I'm not here just referring to the United States, but also Europe, uh, willing to put aside our, our interest in promoting democracy uh, in favor of, say, economic agendas. Um, this is a hugely, I think, uh, uh, fractious point in terms of our relations to African social movements in particular, many of which have been really centering the, the question of economics uh, in their democratic action. And so can you reconcile, uh, say, demands for you know, uh, greater economic redistribution or reduction of inequality? Uh, with sort of the West's traditional support for free markets and, and, and capitalism. Uh, and of course, I think national security. I mean, if you look at much of the current protests in Africa, uh, in places like Uganda, uh, you know, we have basically uh, agreed that we will continue to support a long-running dictatorship in that country, uh, one that has been very, very hostile to nonviolent uh, movements, such as the one currently led by Bobby Wine. Uh, because the Ugandan military plays a very central role in our national security policy. And so uh, too often, I think, with the West, and I think this actually fuels a, a tremendous degree of resentment amongst activists in these contexts, uh, we have been willing to, to, to put aside our interest in promoting democracy in favor of these economic and security goals. And that opens us up 
uh, to, I think, fair criticisms uh, of hypocrisy um, and in ways that I think will undermine uh, our, our long-term credibility uh, as, a, as a site of, of liberal democratic values. Hey, thanks very much, Zachariah. And Hardy, uh, you've done a lot of thinking on this topic. Obviously, you've recently written a, a monograph with Peter Ackerman about the right to assist, um, the right to assist uh, nonviolent campaigns and movements. And so curious about your thoughts on the role of Western democracies and, and beyond and external actors maybe in general in supporting democratic transitions. Sure. Um, I want to echo what Zachariah said because I agree with it fully and I thought they were great points. Um, we have to get this question right. We really have to get this question right about how, whether it's Western democracies or whether it's INGOs, can be better supporters of democracy. Because with rising authoritarianism documented for over 10 years, depending on which measure you look at, 14 years, more, uh, it's leading us to a world that uh, really no country is going to be immune to in terms of the implications of that and the propensity of, a, of the world becoming a more violent place. So we can all think of ways that it can be done wrong, right? How can we do it right? Um, and for me, it starts with asking, okay, so if movements are one of the most significant drivers of democratic transitions, right? Incomplete as they may be, what then makes movements successful? It's not necessarily big grants and it's not necessarily, it's probably, in fact, I, I'm sort of against the, like you throw a lot of money at a movement. I'm quite against that. I think that's a way that sometimes the government might think and actually that can be destructive to movements. So my read of the growing body of research into movement success points to the fact that skills and strategic choices of movements make a big difference. And if that's the case, then shouldn't we think about how we can build better educational infrastructure so that activists can tap into the best insights they can find, the best insights available, whether it's from top scholarship, like yours, Maria, or Eric, or Jonathan, or Zachary, or practitioners like Huda, who have great insights to offer from her experience. How can we build, as external parties, whether we're countries or INGOs, opportunities for activists to get access to the best insights they can from practitioners and scholars so they can build their skills, uh, develop their own strategies which are not imposed from the outside and increase their chance of success. If we do that well, that will carry over into post-transition periods. So if, what we do pre-transition critically affects what will happen post-transition. They're deeply related and I think, you know, post-transition uh, we have to understand that's not the time for people to just go home. Uh, external actors should not say, okay, thank you very much for your, you know, for your revolution. Please go home now. Uh, we'll, we'll just do the institution building. Corruption persists. Uh, the old regime doesn't disappear. In fact, if you want to look at uh, alliances, suddenly they form a negative coalition against the new government because they feel threatened by it and want to get back in. And so th there's a need for ongoing mobilization. There's a need for external actors to understand it. Um, and the last thing I'll say, obviously go on, but I'll stop, is just the importance of incentivizing nonviolent discipline. The one thing that I feel comfortable as an outsider saying, it's okay to really draw a line here and impose it and not necessarily listen to the local need would be if people start talking about the need to become violent because there is so much data that shows that if people can remain nonviolent, there's no guarantee of success, but the prospects are better. And so that's a line that as an external actor, I think really should be held as much as possible. Uh, to, to not incentivize people possibly leaving the table and resorting to violent means. Great, thanks very much, Hardy. The next question I think um, is for you, Jonathan, and Zachariah and others may have uh, thoughts as well, but 
you mentioned that there are, as, or as mentioned, there are several groups working on institutional democracy because it's easier to measure. How would you re recommend that they shift to substantive democratic principles? Yeah, this, this is a really fascinating question. I, I will offer a couple of thoughts, and then uh, and then I will I will I will uh, turn it to, over to Zachariah because I think he will have he will have some thoughts as well. I mean, so the first thing I would say is that I think in the last ten years or so there have been some really I mean fascinating from an academic perspective as well as very helpful and practical um, efforts to gather data and clearly measure these more substantive dimensions of democracy. Um, so uh, Zachariah mentioned the Varieties of Democracy Project, uh, which I, I use some of their measures quite extensively uh, in the book's research. Uh, they not only look at things like, you know, is there, are there free and fair elections? Are there sort of uh, these formal institutional measures, but have hundreds, e even thousands of different measures of these other dimensions of democracy as well, getting into you know, how much economic equality is there such that people can meaningfully participate in politics on a, relati on a relatively equal, equal status? How participatory are the institutions there? Do people from the grassroots actually have a voice in, in making political institutions beyond just, you know, is there, is there the, does the formal right to vote exist? So I think, you know, thinking more critically and using these existing resources more strategically uh, can be one way to, to get at this issue. Uh, and then next, I would also, I mean, just second very briefly, I would, I would really, really emphasize the crucial importance of listening to activists and, and others at the grassroots um, in, like, in these countries. Uh, that what, you know, substantive democracy or sort of a, a full-fledged, like, full-fledged political system that meets the needs and balances the voices of its people, you really have to, like, to understand what that means in a particular context is going to be different from country to country. And really, it's crucial to, to understand what that means for ordinary people within those particular, particular contexts. Um, yeah, so those are a couple of things I would emphasize, but I'm very curious to hear Zachariah's thoughts. Sure, I think uh, for me, you know, one way to sort of start to push beyond our, our limitations currently in how we talk about democracy uh, is to shift our thinking away from democracy as sort of an outcome or an endpoint and to really think about democracy as, as a process. And, and this creates some fundamental tensions uh, for those of us who are interested in measuring dem democracy globally, right? So I'm always uh, very struck by how activists in particular think about uh, these sorts of questions. Um, you know, one of the things, if you participate in a protest, uh, you, you'll always hear a, a very common slogan, uh, this is what democracy looks like, this is what democracy looks like. Uh, and I think that's actually a, an important insight into how they are conceptualizing what democracy means. They're not saying, uh, you know, uh, let's measure the number of elections that have taken place uh, in recent times and, and call that democracy. They're saying democracy begins uh, when people take to the streets and, and demand a, a right uh, to have a say in the political process. It's a very simple concept that I think a lot of activists insist is actually the correct way for us to conceptualize it. And this creates a tension, right? Because uh, on one side, political scientists, um, we sort of look at a case like the United States and we'll say, okay, well, democracy is in retreat. You know, the Trump administration has implemented uh, a lot of these uh, kind of threats to democracy at an institutional level that we should be very, very concerned about. 
Um, but I look at it and say, well, you know, it's also a period in which we've had the highest level of mobilization in U.S. history. And so can we reconcile these two things? Is it that we are uh, experiencing a, a massive shift to people power uh, in, in, in a way that is literally unheard of in, in American history and potentially global history? Uh, or is it that we are going through a democratic decline? Uh, and a lot of this is contingent on what we think democracy actually means. And so for me, um, I think as, as scholars, because we are social scientists and we like to measure things and we like to uh, believe that we can aggregate these measurements into sort of uh, uh, convincing conclusions, uh, I think we need to be a little bit more cautious and sort of temper that with insights from the activist community and say, hey, look, uh, you know, for activists, you know, they have a fundamentally different conception of what democracy means. It is much more related to democracy as process uh, and that maybe we should not do away with our sort of institutional metrics, but start to pay more attention uh, to these dimensions, right? I mean, I spend time in, in Sudan, um, you know, I think one thing that was really extraordinary for me is watching sort of young people, uh, this was like 2014 uh, when the first wave of protests began in that country, uh, who had lived their entire lives under Bashir, uh, taking to the streets and realizing for the first time that it doesn't have to be this way. Right? And again, this was in 2012, 2013, 2014. And by our metrics, those were failed protests. Right? Uh, but I think that once that concept that, you know what, even if Bashir retains institutional power, uh, he no longer retains uh, power over our imaginations. Right? It's, it's almost impossible to capture uh, empirically but I think it is really hugely transformative. And so for me, the transition in Sudan really began during that period when for the first time, uh, as Huda mentioned, right, people started to imagine alternatives uh, to Bashir. And so his time ended at that point, right? Not simply at the point that he actually steps down, but at the moment in which the people no longer believe uh, that he is uh, the sole font of power in that country. And I think that's a lesson that, that is really hard, but is one that we need to, to start to bring into our scholarship as well. Those are really good points. Thanks very much, Zachariah. So we have um, just over five minutes uh, left and we'll try to get through as many of the remaining questions as possible, but there's a really big one here and a meaty one and that's about repression. So the question is, can you speak about the level um, of capacity of the state and repression and how does this all figure into the story about transitions? So maybe Erica, you wanna take the first whack at that one? Sure. Um, I'm curious what Jonathan would say too, um, but I think that um, uh, state capacity for repression um, figures into this to the degree to which the security forces are um, kind of aligned with or united uh, with the incumbent. So uh, if they are willing agents of repression, if police, military, internal security forces, paramilitaries are essentially uh, capable of and willing to sustain repression over a long period uh, without defecting, deserting, mutinying, or questioning whether that's a good idea in their own interests. It certainly can make it a much more difficult road uh, for, for activists. In many contexts where security forces have remained um, kind of unflinchingly loyal to the regime, at least in, in mass, um, activists have often looked to different pillars of support like economic elites and business elites to try to shift their loyalties um, so that they don't have to openly confront security forces and, and therefore put themselves at risk. Um, and, and an example of this would be in uh, South Africa during the anti-apartheid regime, which very much, um, uh, the anti-apartheid campaign, which very much 
kind of turn toward a strategy of dismantling the economic pillars of apartheid as opposed to the uh, security pillars. Um, but I would say that um, one of the, the, the issues that arises around repression is its propensity to backfire against nonviolent uh, resistance movements. And in fact, many nonviolent resistance movements emerge precisely because of repressive episodes that uh, alienate very large uh, groups within the population that then mobilize against what they perceive to be um, a brutal injustice. And, and many movements get their start that way. And then when police meet those protesters with still more violence, uh, the protest can begin, in fact, to call for maximalist claims like the removal of the regime rather than just the end of police brutality, for example. So this is a, a trend we see worldwide. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's always the, the way it happens, but it's more likely to happen than not um, when, when um, there are incidents of repression against mass nonviolent resistance. All right, thanks, Erica. Uh, Jonathan, did you have a quick rejoinder to that before we take the final question? Yeah, I mean, I would just say I completely agree with what Erica brought up here. Those are all sort of really crucial points in the in the story of repression. I think just to, you know, just to reemphasize something that Erica was was talking about, you know, the, the state capacity and particularly the capacity of the state for repression is not something that is fully outside of like an outside force impinging on activists. This is something that changes over time and changes in response to particular strategies as well. That strategic actions by activists can change uh, that, uh, that loyalty of, of state security forces and change those repressive dynamics. Um, so yeah, I would just add that to the, to the points that, that Erica was making. All right, thanks very much, Jonathan. So I'm, there were a lot of great questions. We got to most, but not all, but I wanna end on this one because it's something we've been talking a lot about at USIP um, recently, and it's related to COVID and the pandemic. So the, the question is, uh, can you all speak about sustaining mobilization during COVID, particularly when governments and armed actors alike are using the pandemic as an excuse to seize power, decrease civil liberties and the like. So uh, maybe we can get a, a couple folks thoughts on, on that question before we wrap up. I can just say one thing very quickly, um, which is that, you know, I think movements have also used COVID as an opportunity to deepen uh, the kinds of activities that they engage in. I'll point to something like Project South in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which was one of the first uh, organizations, either governmental or non-governmental, to provide COVID testing uh, in a state in which the governor literally denied the existence and seemed to be completely oblivious uh, to how the virus is transmitted. Uh, so Project South, which is at the forefront of movement building in the U.S. South, was able to pivot and actually provide those services in ways that deepen their relationships to local communities. We've seen similar things in the African context, the, 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 the Congolese group, Lucha, for example, also engaged in a variety of, of uh, educational campaigns to sort of help people understand the significance of COVID in rural parts of that country. So, um, you know, I think it's, it is a very tough terrain for groups to, to navigate, um, but it also presents certain opportunities for them to expand their activities uh, in, in ways they can actually deepen uh, the substance of their, 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 their actions. Erica, did you have a point that you want to make? Yeah, I just, um, to, to build on and kind of second Zachariah's point, I think one of the, the 
kind of inadvertent but important outcomes of this is the development of mutual aid associations, which have always existed but are now being supercharged. And that's exactly the type of organizational capacity that can help to create what Jonathan is talking about uh, because it creates more routine day-to-day -day interactions around real needs um, that are being expressed in people's neighborhoods and people's communities. And that does have the sort of procedural and substantive uh, elements of, of social capital and, and democracy that, um, that can help to solidify gains after a, a mass movement. Great, thanks, Erica. Well, Jonathan, since we're celebrating your uh, book launch today, I'll give you the last word if you want to address COVID or anything else uh, that we've discussed this morning. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, I just, again, I would echo both what Zachariah and, and Erica said about movements responses to COVID. Um, we're actually, I'm uh, with a colleague, uh, Miranda Rivers here at USIP. I'm just finishing up a, a paper that's done some survey research on movements responses to COVID. And people are overwhelming, I would say, overwhelmingly optimistic. Uh, activists see this as a, as a challenge, uh, but also as an opportunity to sort of expand their strategic toolkit, uh, to pivot to meet needs uh, in the ways that, that Zachariah was talking about, Erica was talking about, um, and, and I think as, a, yeah, as an opportunity to push for even more substantive uh, long-term change uh, than they were planning to uh, before the pandemic. Great, thanks so much, Jonathan. We are um, unfortunately at the bewitching hour. And so I wanted to thank everyone from around the world for tuning in um, this morning, this afternoon, this evening. Um, I wanted to thank uh, the panelists, uh, Zachariah, Huda, Erica, Hardy, uh, Jonathan, um, for their great remarks. Uh, warm congratulations again to Jonathan for the publication of his book, From Descent to Democracy. It's huge. And I particularly uh, wanted to thank our um, AV team, uh, Matt and George, for a fine job, as always, our PAC team, and in particular, Miranda Rivers, who on the Nonviolent Action side has been our lead in helping to organize this event. So thank you all. And again, um, thanks everyone for tuning in from around the world and I'm wishing you a wonderful uh, rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.